Let us pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you that as we walk through the Bible, we gain a sense of that wonderful story that unfolds and that culminates in Jesus Christ and him crucified. We pray now that by your Holy Spirit, our eyes and hearts might be opened to receive this message afresh and that we might be empowered not only to have faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but to become more truly his disciples. Amen. Amen. So if you still have a Bible open in front of you, um, then that would be good. If not, then I'd invite you to please open it up again to Galatians chapter 3, the first 18 verses. That's page 1169 in the Church Bibles. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 18. Tom was a world-class athlete. He had reached the pinnacle of his sport by talent and sheer hard work. But in order to just make sure of that Olympic medal, that world record, that number one spot, he decided to take performance-enhancing drugs. And the result was a career-destroyed and a reputation ruined. Kevin and Julie fell deeply in love and in due course got married. After a while, Julie said to Kevin, Darling, I love you very much, and of course I trust you absolutely. However, just to be sure that I can trust you, I need you to know that I've been paying a private detective to follow you around for the last two months. I hope you don't mind. Result, a spoiled relationship. Arthur boarded a train, uh, excuse me, boarded a plane even, and he waited for it to become airborne, and then he announced, thank you very much, but I think I'll get out and walk from here. Result, a very nasty mess on the pavement below. Well, that's three increasingly absurd examples of the same principle. Here's the point. We sometimes talk, don't we, about beginning as we mean to go on, but it's often just as important to go on as we began. And if we do not, then the results can be disastrous. Such, you may recall, was the problem in Galatia. Certain troublemakers had been teaching that faith in Jesus Christ was all very well and good, but in order to be fully signed up as a member of God's family, you also needed to adopt certain Jewish practices that were laid down at the time of Moses. Kosher food laws, Sabbath observance, and circumcision of male believers. But why did this proposal put Paul in such a strop? Well, because it undermines the whole basis of our standing before God. We either trust in Christ or we try to be obedient to the law of Moses. You cannot have it both ways. The two things simply do not belong together. They are as different as chalk and cheese. They are as incompatible as oil and water. To seek to supplement faith by works of the law 
would be, in the words of chapter 2 and verse 21, to abandon God's grace and to render Christ's death completely pointless. Now, in our passage this morning, Paul drives two further nails into the coffin of this faith plus law teaching. He gives, first of all, an argument from the Galatians' own experience as Christian believers. And secondly, he gives an argument from Scripture. First of all, Paul's argument from experience. In the first five verses of chapter 3, Paul invites the Galatians to look back. Remember, he says, when you first trusted in Christ, you know that God worked powerfully among you by his Spirit, don't you? He didn't wait for you to become circumcised. He did it straight away, as soon as you believed. Why on earth would you now veer off course and try to continue some other way? Now, there are a couple of things I would like to draw out from this particular part of Paul's teaching. Firstly, it's clear that the Galatians had experienced the Holy Spirit. They would have agreed with him about that. There was tangible, observable evidence of the Spirit's power, and that's what Paul appeals to. He even, in verse 5, associates the gift of the Spirit with the working of miracles. So they knew then that they had received the Holy Spirit with power. There could be no doubt about it. Now, what are we going to do with this teaching? I'm not a card-carrying charismatic, but I'm not prepared to slide over this text without some comment. No doubt some Christians are credulous about the supernatural. They are prepared to see an angel in every sunset and a demon lurking behind every bush. I don't actually think, do you, that the Church of England is overrun with uh, fanaticism like that, do you? The problem for most of us is not our credulity, but our scepticism. We are hyper-cautious and ultra-careful. In fact, our expectations of, of seeing the Holy Spirit work in tangible or extraordinary ways are so low as to be almost non-existent. But scripture, this scripture, is clear. People should be able to tell whether they have received the Spirit or not. That's something I think that we might search scripture more on and come before God in prayer more on. If that isn't, doesn't seem quite so true for us and for many Christians today. So it's clear that the Galatians had experienced the Holy Spirit. But secondly, it's equally clear when they received the Holy Spirit. They received the Holy, the Holy Spirit at the very time that they believed in Christ, because once again, Paul's argument would not work here. They received Christ and they received the Spirit at one and the same time. Now, down the years, some Christians have taught a two-stage initiation into the Christian faith. First, you receive salvation from Christ, and then later, you receive power from the Holy Spirit. Some of the Puritans refer to this second stage as the sealing of the Spirit, 
and that fine 20th century preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones adopted that approach too. The early Methodists following John Wesley talked about that second stage as Christian perfection. In the early days of the Keswick movement, there were those who taught that the higher life was a separate and subsequent stage in the Christian's walk with God. And then classical Pentecostalism teaches the baptism of the Holy Spirit, again as a second stage subsequent to conversion. Now, the spiritual instincts of such teachers were often sound. They looked around at the lack of spiritual power amongst many professing Christians, and they concluded there must be something missing. But any two-stage doctrine of the Christian life is dangerous because it can too easily lead to pride, elitism, frustration, and disunity, and it's also unscriptural. The clear implication of Paul's teaching here is that they received the Holy Spirit with power when they received Christ and not sometime afterwards. Elsewhere in his writings, Paul clarifies that all believers have been baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ and that if anyone does not have the Holy Spirit, he does not belong to Christ. You cannot be in Christ without the Spirit of Christ being in you. So it's never a question of us having more of the Holy Spirit. It is perhaps more a question of the Holy Spirit having more of us. All of that arises from Paul's argument from experience. When the Galatians first believed in Christ... God equipped them with all things necessary by his Spirit. There were no further qualifications required in order to be promoted to some higher division of spirituality. They just needed to continue as they had begun. But now from verse 6 and onwards, Paul moves on to a second argument. He moves from the argument from experience to the argument from Scripture. Because vital as spiritual experience is, it is to Scripture that we must turn as the final court of appeal. Now, it's very likely that Paul had those troublemakers in his sights at this point, and he meets them on their own ground. They might well have argued, we have Scripture on our side. Trusting Christ is all very well, but you can't just set aside the law of Moses. It was, after all, God himself who revealed it at Mount Sinai. And Paul's answer is not, please note, oh, well, you can make Scripture say what you like. His answer, in essence, is to say, you haven't done the walk through the Bible day, have you? You don't know your Bibles well enough. Let me tell you what the Bible really says on this matter. Let's go back to Abraham, he says in verse 6. A very good choice because uh, the Jews regarded Abraham as the father of their nation. 
To be a member of God's family meant to be a descendant of Abraham. Do you note those references, that reference to Abraham in what John the Baptist was saying in our reading from, uh, from Luke? Now, was Abraham counted righteous before God, Paul asks, by observing the law? or by believing God's promise. And he's quoting scripture all over the place here, and he quotes Genesis 15 to clinch the matter. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's there in those very scriptures that the troublemakers uh, held in such high esteem. So now the question is, who then are the true followers, the true children, the true descendants of Abraham? Who are the true people of God? Who is the true Israel? Is it those who practice circumcision and other requirements of the law? No, it is, in verse 7, those who believe who are the true children of Abraham. So where does that leave the law then? Paul quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verse 26. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Do you see the point he's making? The law requires, the law demands absolute obedience. It's like a fence intended to contain a pride of hungry lions. It doesn't matter if that fence is breached one or many times. The fence has been broken and the lions are out. But if the law condemns in, that, in such an absolute way, what hope is there for any of us? And now we approach Brothers and sisters, the heart of the matter. Now we can see why when Paul first preached the gospel to the Galatians, he, in verse 1, says that he placarded before their very eyes Jesus Christ as crucified. Because it was in Christ's death on the cross that, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And here is the stumbling block, the offence, the foolishness of the cross, that God would choose this way and this way only to build a people for himself and for his praise. We are not and we cannot be saved by law-keeping, nor are we saved by Christ's example or even by Christ's assistance. We are saved by a complete exchange between Christ and ourselves. He, this is now the word redemption, he has taken on our debt and paid it off in full. He, here is bearing the curse of the law for us, he has stood in our place and borne the punishment that we deserved. He did this, verse 14, so that the promise made all those years ago to Abraham might come to all people everywhere, and that through faith we all might receive God's life-giving spirit. Conclusion. 
Thousands of people in this and every age hope to get right with God through their own efforts. They suppose that Christianity is a system of doing good, and they hope that they will prove to be good enough for God in the end. I well remember as a teenager being asked, Jonathan, are you a Christian? And my rather stumbling answer was, well, I try to be. And it took me another eight years before I joyfully realized that acceptance with God does not depend on anything that I might try to do. It's not try, but trust. It's not do, but done. It's not turn over a new leaf, but receive a new life. And that's how we begin the Christian life, and that's how we must continue it. There are many outputs that will flow from this new life of faith. Paul will have much to say about these as he expands on the role of the Holy Spirit in shaping our lives as Christian disciples in the second part of Galatians. But there are no inputs that any of us can contribute, none whatsoever. As the old hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. All the fitness, says another hymn, all the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. This is God's single plan of salvation for all people. His one way of being counted a member of his family, promised to Abraham, accomplished by Jesus Christ, experienced by all who come to him by faith and celebrated as we come to the Lord's table together this morning and feed on him in our hearts by faith. Thanks be to God.